Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. In recent months, we've heard vocal opposition to Israel's West Bank annexation plans from the Palestinians and the Jordanians. But one voice in the Arab world has been noticeably quiet. Egypt. That is, until now. Egyptian Foreign Minister Sameh Shukri visited Jordan and the West Bank over the weekend. During his time in Ramallah, he met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas and made a statement condemning annexation. The question is, why only do this now, and what do Egypt's actions suggest about its position on the annexation question? To help us understand that situation, we're joined by Israel Policy Forum's Israel Fellow, Nimrod Novik. Nimrod was a foreign policy advisor to the late Shimon Peres. He is a member of the Steering Committee of Commanders for Israel Security, and he is an expert on Egypt's role in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Nimrod, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's go back to the basics. Egypt is one of only two Arab countries to share a formal peace treaty with Israel, the other being Jordan. So both clearly have an interest in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Jordan has been very public about opposing annexation, Egypt less so. Why is Egypt quieter, or put another way, why has Jordan been so vocal? Um, you, you, you did the right thing by uh, saying let's go back to basics, because you really got to look uh, it's the point of departure for Egypt and Jordan uh, in order to understand current uh, conduct. Um, the, the first thing one has to remember about uh, Egypt and its relations with Israel is that Egypt has never uh, fully recovered uh, from Arab world, Islamic world accusations the day through the Palestinian issue under the bus, uh, as well as uh, the other two countries at the time when Egypt signed a peace treaty with Israel, uh, which were Syria and Jordan, that had claim, territorial claim uh, of Israel as a result of the 1967 Six-Day War. Uh, and here Egypt went on it for its own uh, interests, uh, ignoring the Arab consensus that preceded the peace treaty, broke away, and signed a peace treaty with Israel. Uh, Egypt, Egypt has never recovered from that. Uh, the Arab world boycotted Egypt. Uh, this had many manifestations, uh, including in ways that affected the, the livelihood of uh, millions of Egyptians. And just to be clear for our listeners, you're talking about the reaction when Egypt concluded a peace treaty with Israel in the 1970s, the first Arab country to do so. Precisely. Precisely. And was accused by the Arab world of having betrayed both the Palestinians and the other Arab countries that had a territorial claim uh, of Israel, Syria, the Golan Heights, Jordan at the time, the West Bank, and of course, East Jerusalem. Um, and here, uh, uh, President Sadat of Egypt decided that Egypt's interests uh, differ from those of all the others, and he went for a separate deal with Israel and signed a peace treaty. Uh, with um, uh, our late Prime Minister Menachem Begin under the auspices of uh, the U.S. President Jimmy Carter. Uh, since the, Even though it's been decades uh, since that event, a very dramatic event of his uh, visit to Jerusalem and the ensuing negotiations and treaty, uh, nonetheless, uh, Egypt still uh, bears the scars uh, of that moment and 
always, always uh, uh, try to demonstrate that it is more loyal to the Palestinians than anybody else in the Arab world. And yet, as you correctly pointed out, uh, here is a moment of truth on that issue. Uh, Israel is declared its intention with American backing to annex unilaterally uh, West Bank territory, and Egypt is quiet. Uh, so yes, it is puzzling, it is uncharacteristic, uh, and it, uh, I believe, uh, a mark of a very difficult moment for Egypt, where its dependence on the United States uh, is to such an extent that uh, President Sisi is very careful not to offend uh, President uh, Trump. And any statement that uh, suggests that the Trump plan, the Trump vision uh, for Israeli-Palestinian uh, deal of the century uh, is less than perfect, uh, President Sisi is very, very careful not to go there. He has problems with Congress that is uh, quite uh, vocal about Egyptian human rights violations, including of American citizens. And it has been the White House that shielded uh, Egypt thus far from uh, severe consequences. So he's been walking a very tight rope and played uh, a fairly sophisticated game uh, in the sense that he left no doubt uh, either in uh, Washington or in Jerusalem, as to where he stands on the subject, uh, but did not make public his opposition uh, to the to the plan uh, and and to the unilateral annexation which it has facilitated. It's a good point that you bring up about the United States because. I mean, a lot of the conversation around annexation revolves around the Trump plan. And when that framework was initially released in January, Egypt's statement wasn't an endorsement, but it was pretty tepid. And as you've hinted at, Egypt is a major beneficiary of American uh, foreign military aid. It's the second largest recipient of American foreign military aid after Israel. But I want to bring this back also in terms of Egyptian interests, because Jordan is also a significant recipient of uh, American foreign military, the third largest, certainly in terms of the actual numbers, a lot less than Egypt and Israel. Uh, but the Jordanians have put themselves out in front and really gone out on a limb and, and, and spoken out against annexation. So what's the point of departure between the Egyptian and Jordanian outlook on this? The, the point of departure is, is unilateral annexation, which for Jordan is existential, I'm talking perceptions, is existential threat, whereas for Egypt, uh, it is a complication. And, and let, me, let me explain. Uh, as long as the Trump plan was, uh, was uh, evolving, uh, and as we all know, it was very discreetly done, uh, and, and, uh, and details were not shared with anybody, uh, repeatedly, both President Sisi and King Abdullah of Jordan uh, complained to Washington uh, that they are kept in the dark on something that affects their national security, the national interests, the future of their respective countries. Uh, they suggested that the administration should try the plan on them first before going public so that the administration might benefit from their respective perspectives uh, before uh, it's a done deal. 
and none of that was happening. And both the king and the president uh, in Cairo and Amman, respectively, were furious and conveyed that to Washington, but also, but only in very private ways. Uh, we were privy to it because we heard it from, from both sides, uh, but that also was in a very discreet way. Um, the, the, the big difference uh, between what unilateral annexation might uh, do to Jordan and to Egypt is that uh, Jordan's uh, population majority Palestinian, uh, uh, Jordan is far more vulnerable uh, economically and, and, and otherwise, socially and otherwise, uh, than Egypt. Uh, Jordan is next door to the West Bank, borders directly on the West Bank. Egypt does not. Uh, not only does Egypt not border on the West Bank, but uh, that part of Palestinian territory, the Gaza Strip, that borders on Egypt uh, is basically re removed from Egypt by the landmass of the Sinai Peninsula from the heartland uh, of Egypt. Um, so the Jordanians have long suspected some, for some it's not a suspicion, for some it's a conviction that Israel has a secret scheme of one day resolving the Palestinian issue by forcing the Palestinian population of the West Bank, all three million of them, across the Jordan River into the Kingdom of Jordan. Um, and Jordan, which already uh, accommodated waves of refugees from the wars between us and the Palestinians, from uh, Syria, from Iraq, uh, is afraid that the old mantra that we, we haven't heard in a long time, Jordan is Palestine, uh, is still a driving concept for people around the prime minister. It's good that you bring that up because uh, there was an interview uh, yesterday or two days ago in The Guardian with Jordan's prime minister, Omar Razaz. And uh, in the, the interview, the headline that got everyone's attention was, about the debate between a one-state solution and two-state solution. But if you read the interview, he mentions a list of things that are unacceptable to Jordan, and he names explicitly this Jordanian option that you're talking about, the, the so-called Jordan as Palestine model. And to me, the fact that a Jordanian prime minister in 2020 feels the need, uh, whether rightly or wrongly, to, to explicitly and publicly call out uh, the Jordanian option as something that he sees as actually being on the table from the Israeli government side is pretty significant. It seems so, such a remote possibility for those of us who've been following the dynamics of Israeli politics, Israeli-Palestinian dynamics, uh, peace negotiations, collapse of, peace, of, of rounds of peace negotiations, and so on. The suggestion that anybody can take seriously uh, the proposition that in the 21st century, a country like Israel um, might uh, contemplate and implement uh, ethnic cleansing on such a scale sounds so bizarre. Uh, but when you cross the river into Jordan and sit down with Jordanian officials, even before there was a discussion of annexation of 30% or less of the, of the West Bank, every incident on Temple Mount, every incident is considered by the Jordanian is a potential trigger for an Israeli-Palestinian bloodbath, 
that ends with massive refugees fleeing the West Bank into Jordan. And every time that we have tension in the region, tensions in the West Bank and primarily in Jerusalem, we hear the same from the Jordanians. Uh, many Israelis dismiss it uh, as uh, scare tactics, as worst case scenario approach and so on. Uh, but I believe that we have to take more, uh, we, we have to be far more sympathetic and empathetic with, with Jordanian perceptions, even though we don't believe that that's what's in the card, uh, we cannot dismiss this as a major incentive uh, that drives Jordanian policy uh, on anything that has to do with the West Bank, annexation uh, more than, than, than most. For Egypt, this is a different story. For Egypt, this is a different story. It's not an existential issue, but it's, it's an issue of security. Uh, we've seen Egypt involved uh, in every round of violence uh, in Gaza, uh, being the, the primary uh, firefighter, um, and, and in between trying to uh, get Israelis, uh, uh, Hamas, uh, the, the Palestinian Authority, uh, third parties like uh, Saudi Arabia and the, and the United Arab Emirates and others in, to, 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 to change course. And, uh, and, and launch some kind of initiative that will create a more stable situation. The reason being that, uh, well, that's basically two reasons. One, for Egypt, Hamas is an arm of the Muslim Brotherhood, which, uh, as you recall, of course, uh, uh, won elections in Egypt and was uh, ousted by the uh, Egyptian military because for the Egyptian establishment, security establishment, political establishment, elite. The Muslim Brothers are a bunch of terrorists out to undermine a regime stability and, uh, and, and Egyptian uh, state uh, security. Hamas, being an arm of the Muslim Brotherhood, is considered an enemy, part of the same enemy. Um, so the Egyptians are trying to steer Hamas away from the Muslim Brotherhood, from terrorism, trying to tame them, transform them into a political uh, movement with not, without much success. They have been uh, successful in decoupling the relationship, the direct relationships uh, between uh, Hamas and the Muslim Brothers in Egypt uh, and stopping the armed uh, uh, smuggling back and forth, uh, the, the terrorist support back and forth and so on, uh, but not in changing the, the nature uh, of Hamas and, 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 its, and its orientation. But any violence in Gaza, the Egyptians are concerned, uh, will spill over into Sinai. And given security concerns in Sinai anyway, uh, that will aggravate the situation. And the Egyptians are, have not been uh, very uh, successful in rooting out all kinds of terrorist uh, cells in the Sinai all kinds of Al-Qaeda derivatives, ISIS derivatives, uh, and other lunatics. Um, and the last thing they need is uh, Hamas reinforcement for these people uh, with, with Hamas operatives uh, escaping Gaza due to Israeli uh, massive military uh, operation. So the Egyptians want stability um, and to avoid any violence. The Jordanians see it in a completely uh, different magnitude as a, a threat on regime stability, 
the kingdom's stability and the, uh, and the uh, social fabric of their country should what they perceive uh, is the uh, domino effect that will start with annexation and will end with massive uh, Palestinian refugees flooding uh, Jordan uh, materialize. You mentioned Egypt's attempts to kind of shepherd Hamas along this political transformation process. And of course, Egypt has been the mediator in this perennial and perennially fruitless process of Palestinian reconciliation between Hamas and the West Bank-based Fatah. Is there no concern on the Egyptian side of what could happen to that process should something happen to the Palestinian Authority or the PLO as a consequence of annexation? Very much so. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, the head of Egyptian intelligence uh, under the radar uh, visited uh, Israel and met with our leaders in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, the uh, political echelon and security counterparts, and conveyed a very clear message about Egypt's concern uh, as to what annexation might produce. Um, precisely in those terms. And, uh, but as, as I mentioned, they're being very, very careful not to make that public. Um, people are puzzled because few know uh, what Egypt has been doing under the radar, not that it has been very effective thus far. Um, but yes, they, they have conveyed their view. Uh, the visit uh, uh, that you mentioned of uh, the uh, Egyptian foreign minister two days ago uh, to Ramallah uh, was, in, was in that context. The Egyptian strategy has long been, uh, since, since the, the summer war of 2014 in Gaza, uh, that was the moment that the Egyptians reached the conclusion that the previous strategy was just not working. Uh, temporary uh, stability, some kind of Israeli mini gestures uh, on the closure, and Hamas commitments on nonviolence, um, it turned out that what, what uh, lasted a couple of years, uh, a couple of times, turned out to last a couple of months and sometimes even a couple of weeks uh, before it broke down. And they thought that the time has come for a far more comprehensive strategy that will change dynamics on the ground and will create a, a more serious, long, long, long-lasting stability. Um, and, but that strategy was based on a three-phase approach. Phase one uh, was what they called Fatah-Fatah reconciliation. That is to say, um, bringing the various uh, parties inside the Palestinian Authority around Abu Mazen and beyond uh, into a coalition uh, uh, where they start cooperating rather than competing with each other uh, in order to have uh, Fatah and the PA enter the second phase, which is reconciliation with Hamas, as a strengthened entity. That did not work. Uh, nonetheless, they pursued the second phase, which is Hamas-Fatah uh, reconciliation. That, too, did not work. And both were to, pre- to prepare the grounds for Palestinian-Israeli negotiation, which, of course, did not materialize. What we've seen over the last few weeks since uh, Jibril or Jube, uh, a, a leading contender for the Palestinian succession uh, after Abu Mazen, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, 
um, since he was appointed to coordinate all uh, uh, PA activities in the context of annexation. Uh, he started a strategy that, uh, that uh, was encouraged by the Egyptians and Jordanians, which is uh, to try and present a united Palestinian front uh, to confront, to deter, and then confront annexation should it happen. Uh, and that started the, the, those two moments thus far where Jibril Ordub and, and a leading Hamas leader addressed the public via Zoom uh, in, in an almost unprecedented uh, way uh, since the rupture between the two movements. Um, one thing that is on the agenda right now is uh, the next step uh, in that show of unity, and the accent, I think, is on show rather than unity, uh, but uh, the next step in this show uh, is going to be is 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 is, is um, what is being prepared. I'm not sure if it materializes, but uh, in the next few days we are supposed to see uh, a, a, the two leaders uh, of Hamas and the PA, that is to say, Mahmoud Abbas Abu Mazen and uh, Ismail Haniya, uh, uh, jointly addressing the Palestinian people again via Zoom, uh, which is something that we had not seen since the rupture between the two uh, movements a decade ago. Um, uh, that is, that's part of the Jibril strategy uh, in the, that goes beyond uh, annexation. But annexation and the COVID crisis and the coincidence between the two created a setting that uh, grassroots, the people in, in both the West Bank and Gaza demand of their leadership or expect of their leadership to put aside all differences and face uh, the two challenges uh, uh, jointly. Uh, and since this has been a Jibril Rajoub thing for a long time, he really seemed to be seizing the opportunity uh, in order to move it a notch uh, forward. Uh, it obviously will not hurt. Uh, his prospects for leadership uh, when he is uh, perceived as the uh, uh, architect of a, of a, a reconciliation of that nature. Uh, I guess nobody knows how far it will go. Um, we are, we are all uh, uh, observers of past efforts that have failed. Uh, we have little reasons to believe that this one would be any different, but who knows? In any of it, in, in the, at least for the short term, uh, it serves Abu Mazen, it serves Hania, who is also competing for leadership uh, in the, in the, uh, uh, on the Hamas leadership. Uh, they will have elections in uh, 2021 for the Hamas leadership, and he's running. Uh, so being together uh, uh, is, 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 is a, uh, a boost to the morale of the Palestinian public in both the West Bank and Gaza, and maybe in diaspora as well, but also serves the personal interests, the political interests of Hania, Abu Mazen, and Jibril Ojub. And the Egyptians here, as well as the Jordanians, are supporting these efforts. And from what we understood, uh, that was the primary issue on the agenda of the visit of the uh, Egyptian foreign minister. So, 
Segwaying back to the public side of this, because you just mentioned the Egyptian foreign minister's visit, uh, that was something that took place over the weekend. But back in June, before the July 1st date on which formal deliberations on annexation were allowed to commence in Israel, uh, the Egyptian foreign minister Shukri was supposed to join his Jordanian counterpart, Ayman al-Safadi, in Ramallah to meet with President Abbas and take a stand against annexation. But the Egyptian foreign minister ended up skipping that trip. Why was that? Uh, we uh, we tried to find out, and to this very moment, we have no explanation uh, why the Egyptians uh, wa- did not want to do it uh, jointly. But it was their decision, not the Jordanians or Palestinians. Um, we 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 have no uh, information. And we can't even find, you know, reasonable speculation. We just don't know why the Egyptians opted out of that of that move. Um, one thing that did happen, uh, and that probably uh, uh, triggered the foreign minister's uh, visit uh, by himself, was that uh, the day before, there was a very uh, unhappy conversation between Abu Mazen and President Sisi. Uh, Abu Mazen wanted a uh, a far more uh, outspoken Egyptian position uh, in support of the Palestinian position uh, on on annexation against annexation, uh, and Sisi was reluctant. But not only was he reluctant, uh, he uh, was urging Abu Mazen to open a channel to the White House. Um, there are two versions of his message to Abu Mazen or his uh, advice uh, to Abu Mazen, and they are contradictory, and I cannot resolve uh, the, the conflict between them. Uh, both of them confirm uh, that he urged him to open a channel to the White House, but the objective of that channel is very, very different between the two versions. One says that it was designed in order to secure for the Palestinians to, to negotiate a, a, a adequate uh, compensation, so to speak, from Israel uh, in return for the annexation. If that was his message, it's very, very troubling for those of us who oppose annexation, uh, because it sounds almost as though he endorsed the concept. The other version says uh, uh, basically the opposite. Um, I have it on good authority from Washington, he says, uh, that version says that uh, Sisi conveyed that if you open a channel with Washington, uh, Washington will see to it that annexation will not take place. Now, I don't know which of these two versions is correct. Uh, I do know from good sources that Abu Mazen refused uh, to consider uh, reopening uh, any dialogue with the administration. Um, and the following day, uh, Shukri came in order to sort of calm the waters uh, and uh, focus on something constructive, uh, such as the Jibrila Jubra initiative. That version of the call that would suggest that the Egyptians were seeking compensation for annexation kind of calls to mind this story that crops up time and time again. And 
has been disproven and denied time and again that Egypt would perhaps compensate the Palestinians for annexation by conceding territory in the Sinai Peninsula and then attaching it to the Gaza Strip. Concerning the two, the two versions of the, uh, of the Sisi Abu Madan call, um, I certainly subscribe to the second. If I have to speculate, I subscribe to the second. I don't think that the Egyptians that even crossed their minds uh, to endorse unilateral annexation. Uh, it just doesn't compute. Uh, even if Washington was to urge them to do that, uh, there were moments in history where Washington urged them not so re- not so long ago, uh, and they declined when something was really run- running counter to their understanding of the national interest. So I, I think that if anything, Sisi suggested, why don't you open up a channel with, with Washington, uh, uh, and that will uh, put an end uh, to the story of, of unilateral annexation. But yes, you're right. It, it, it does uh, uh, remind us of a story that keeps coming back at us, uh, that uh, at some point uh, Egypt uh, will help us resolve the Palestinian, uh, the conflict with the Palestinians by contributing territory, sovereign Egyptian territory, uh, to the state of Palestine. Uh, and I'm reminded decades ago uh, when uh, Itzhak Rabin, uh, Shalom, as prime minister, uh, sent me to Cairo, uh, he came up with a novel idea that by now is a conventional wisdom, but at the time was, uh, was really uh, totally out of the box. It was the first time that anybody suggested that Israel contribute territory uh, to Gaza in return for territory we'll seek to annex in the West Bank uh, in, in, in a deal with the Palestinians. So his notion was not that Egypt unilaterally will contribute a land to Gaza, but that Egypt will match the Israeli contribution. And he thought, how can the Egyptian leaders say no? If Israel contributes sovereign territory, how come a sister Arab country will not do the same? So, so I went to Cairo and I met with uh, the chief advisor of uh, President uh, Mubarak. And we had a serious conversation. Uh, he, 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 he laughed it away. He said, you guys don't really understand what sovereignty means in Egypt. Uh, you didn't learn the lesson uh, of our peace treaty when uh, you didn't leave the last one square kilometer uh, of Sinai. And we threatened to break the whole thing down over that one square kilometer until uh, you uh, wisely uh, decided to give it up. Uh, no, not not a grain of, of soil and not one square inch and certainly not uh, territory for Gaza or for anything else. Uh, it has been coming back time and again and again. People come with what they uh, view as creative ideas. Uh, Egypt will contribute to Gaza. Israel will provide Egypt with territory in the Negev in order to have a land link to Jordan. Jordan will contribute. There are all kinds of funny concepts uh, that uh, are simply uh, total fiction, uh, will never happen. uh, And uh, our only course is back to basics. Two-state solution on the basis uh, of the known parameters with adjustments to changes over time. Yeah, I mean, the ideas always seemed very strange. And I mean, you don't even have to look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The fact that Egypt 
has never conceded on its territorial dispute with Sudan in the south, um, to me would suggest why why would they give up land in a far more hotly contested area if they're not going to do it even there. So I, I think that you hit the nail on the head. The last question I want to ask is kind of bringing it to the present in terms of the events that are going on right now in Israel. Is it significant at all that the Egyptian foreign minister's visit to Ramallah with President Abbas only came after annexation was seemingly tabled, albeit possibly temporarily, in Jerusalem, and when the Israeli government is now distracted by a surge in coronavirus cases and these uh, protests against Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that, you know, landing in Israel and not stopping in Jerusalem and going to Ramallah suggests that the Egyptians are still not comfortable that annexation is off the table. Uh, the Egyptians were scarred uh, when uh, Prime Minister Menachem Begin visited Sadat uh, days before we bombed the Iraqi reactor in the early 80s. And the very fact that he visited him uh, 48 or 72 hours before the operation was taken by the uh, conspiracy-prone Arab world as a suggestion that Egypt was was privy to the to the operation and maybe green-lighted it. Uh, the Egyptians uh, remember that very, very well. And the last thing they need is that Israel will go for annexation days after uh, a high-level meeting uh, with, uh, uh, with, an, with a senior uh, Egyptian official. Um, but this was also the reason why Jordan refused to receive uh, Benny Gantz or Gabi Ashkenazi. Uh, both were offered. Um, I thought that those visits could have been very useful, not because of what they will tell His Majesty in Jordan, but because of what they would hear for him, from him and convey to the Israeli cabinet if and when annexation is uh, discussed, uh, how severely it is uh, taken by Jordan. And in, 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 in a private conversation like that, uh, the king could express himself more freely even than the uh, prime minister did in the interview you mentioned. Uh, so th- both Jordan and Egypt are very careful. Uh, they keep contacts to Israel uh, confined to the uh, uh, Mossad and other secret services and their counterparts on on their side so that nothing will be visible. And if, God forbid, Israel goes for annexation, they're not implicated. So clearly it's not over until it's over. And certainly from the perspective of Egypt and from Jordan, this is still an open case. So we're going to have to continue to pay attention to what is going on in the developments between Israel and Egypt and Israel and Jordan, and of course, the Palestinians and Israel. Nimrod, thank you for joining us and for sharing your expertise on this issue. It's a pleasure. And for our listeners, we have a couple of opportunities for you to explore these issues in greater depth. We talked a lot on this podcast about the Trump plan, and Israel Policy Forum has now released a new comprehensive policy study taking apart the Trump plan piece by piece, 
It's written by Israeli security expert Dr. Shaul Arieli, who is a policy advisor for Israel Policy Forum, and you can find it on our website at ipf.li forward slash Trump study. And on Tuesday, July 28th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, we're going to be having the next installment of our Tuesday video briefing series. This one is going to be featuring leading voices from the next generation of American Jewish community leaders and policy experts talking about the conversation around annexation. It's featuring Yair Rosenberg from Tablet, Elisheva Goldberg from the New Israel Fund, and Rabbi Rachel Isaacs from the Center on Small Town Jewish Life. And you can find registration information for that program at ipf.li forward slash July 28. That's the numbers two eight. And until then, stay safe, be healthy, and we'll catch you on the next episode.